The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Hey everyone, this week our team wanted to bring you a special bonus episode of a new sports show we're sure you'll enjoy, a show I also happen to be a part of. The podcast is called Torched, and it's all about scandals and controversies on the world's biggest stage, the Olympics. The show's hosted by Molly Bloom, whose story you may recognize if you've seen the movie Molly's Game. Molly trained as an Olympic skier for a decade, but after a bad injury, she suddenly found herself running high-stakes poker games for the rich and powerful. Now, Molly's trading in her poker chips for a pen and a microphone. On this episode of Torched, which I wrote, Molly revisits the 1972 men's basketball gold medal game, set against a bitter Cold War backdrop. To this day, the U.S. team has refused to accept their silver medals because of what went down on the court with the Soviet Union. Was it simply controversy? Or could it have been conspiracy? Keep listening to find out. And if you enjoy the episode, you can subscribe to Torched on your favorite podcast app right now. It's said that inside a bank in Switzerland, there's a vault. Inside the vault, there are 12 medals, Olympic medals. The medals are two and a half inches in diameter, four millimeters thick. The Greek goddess Victory is carved on one side. On the other side, the twin sons of Zeus. The Olympics are supposed to represent sports at their purest and very best. The paragon of fair play and honorable competition. And an Olympic medal is the embodiment of those ideals. These 12 medals, however, stand for something very different. Rejection and despair. An injustice that took place on a basketball court 50 years ago. September 9th, 1972. The Summer Games in Munich. The Night of the Injustice. What went wrong? Well, a lot. Here's what went down. It's the final seconds of the gold medal game between the United States and the Soviet Union. The Soviets led by a point, but Doug Collins was at the free throw line for Team USA. With the game and the gold medal on the line, Collins hit the first of two free throws. That tied the game. Now he had a chance to give the U.S. the lead. 
The U.S. was now ahead, 50-49. to 49. The Russians then inbound the ball. But after the sound of a whistle, play was stopped. And Bedlam has taken over here at the basketball hall. The United States leads now, 50-49. There's one second showing on the clock. There was confusion on the court. Even the TV announcer, Frank Gifford, had trouble keeping up with the unfolding events. They're changing the clock is what they're doing. They're going back to three seconds is what the PA announcer said. The Soviets quickly inbounded the ball again. A player launched the basketball high into the air, across court in desperation. But the buzzer sounded, signifying the end of the game. We had gone out there, we had protected the U.S. winning the game, we had protected the U.S. keeping the gold medal, and I can tell you that was as exciting uh, uh, three or four minutes as, uh, as can go through your mind. That's Kenny Davis, who was the captain of the U.S. team. I mean, winning a gold medal in Olympics is pretty special. But the gold medal, the dream... It was all about to be ripped away from Kenny and his teammates. What happened next on the basketball court was controversy, and some believe conspiracy. And when the night was over, the way the United States players saw it, their gold medals were stolen from them and handed over to the Soviets. Which is why those silver medals have allegedly been sitting in a vault in Switzerland, collecting dust, waiting for the U.S. team to claim them. Nearly 50 years have passed since that night in Munich, and not one of those 12 players has accepted what they see as a lie. Welcome to Torched, a show about the heat of competition and what the greatest athletes would lose to win. I'm Molly Bloom. I'm a former athlete turned author, motivational speaker, and storyteller. I once made headlines when I pled guilty to running a notorious illegal gambling operation. It was just a poker game with incredibly high stakes. My games attracted billionaires, politicians, celebrities, and world-class athletes. They even made a movie about it, Molly's Game. It was nominated for an Oscar. I know firsthand what it's like to put it all on the line. I've witnessed what happens to extraordinary humans under extraordinary amounts of pressure. Some people rise to the occasion, some people fall. On Torch, I'm exploring the huge sacrifices, ethical dilemmas, and psychological burdens athletes face to be the best at their craft. This season is all about controversies and scandals on the biggest world stage, the Olympics. And this episode is about a game that is regarded as one of the greatest Olympic travesties to ever take place the 1972 men's basketball gold medal game. The Munich Olympics were overshadowed by the tragic terrorist attacks that claimed the lives of 11 Israeli Olympians and shook the world. Several days after those killings, the infamous game between the Americans and Soviets unfolded to the backdrop of a bitter Cold War. It was a contest between a young, unbeaten U.S. squad and a veteran, battle-hardened USSR team. The result lives in infamy. The members of the U.S. team are the only athletes in Olympic history that are known to ever have refused their medals. 
But to understand what was taken from those 12 men, you must first understand what they went through, what they overcame to put themselves in a position to win gold. The United States went into the 1972 Olympics as the dominant force in basketball, having never lost a single game since the 1936 Games, when basketball was introduced as an Olympic sport. They were a staggering 63-0 in international competition. The 1972 team was expected to win again, but this was far from an experienced star-studded group. This was long before the days of the Dream Team, before NBA players were allowed to play in the Olympics. The average age of the players on the United States' final 72 roster was 20 years old. This was an anonymous group of men that met for the first time only six months before the start of the Games. We spent 26 days at Pearl Harbor, and over half of those days we're practicing three times a day, morning, afternoon, and night, two hours each session. That's Kenny Davis describing what training was like for the U.S. team. After being selected, the players were sent to the naval base at Pearl Harbor, which then was still operational. The setting tells you all you need to know about the team's coach, Hank Iba. 68 years old and real old school. He proudly called his style of play, quote, the horse and buggy, because it was slow-paced and old-fashioned. While it clashed with the younger players' approach, Hank was set in his ways. Coach Iba felt like that we probably needed to get away from uh, as much uh, outside influences here in the United States as possible. We obviously uh, put our nose to the grindstone for those 26 straight days. The conditions were so miserable, the training so punishing, that one of the team's best players, center Sweden Nader from UCLA, lost over 20 pounds during the month. Near the end of it, he quit. A 22-year-old center from the University of Maryland, Tom McMillan, took his place. This is Tom. The conditions were pretty harsh in Hawaii, but it was very, it was very military-oriented kind of facility and no air conditioning and three practices a day. It was Hank Ivo was a real taskmaster. For the players, Pearl Harbor was a harsh reality check. But while they were hardened by the punishing training, they took off for Munich as a close-knit group, all of them overwhelmed with pride to be representing their country. It wasn't the first time I'd been to Europe, but it was a you know a very special experience. And the opening ceremony with you know 120 some nations, 80,000 fans, you know this is pretty special, and it's kind of etched in your memory because it is such a special occasion. Kenny was the oldest player on the team, at 23, and was just as moved by the moment. The opening ceremonies day, the weather was the most perfect of all the days we were there, so it was kind of like of an omen that everything is going to be okay, and uh, we were excited about that. This was the youngest U.S. basketball team in Olympic history, and none of the players had ever worn red, white, and blue for their country. At the opening ceremonies... The entire team was wide-eyed, in awe that they had made it to this moment. The 1972 Olympics were the first on German soil since the 1936 Berlin Games, 
which were infamously held under the gaze of Adolf Hitler. Set in Munich, the third largest city in Germany, the Olympics were supposed to represent the rebirth of a nation with a peaceful celebration. They turned out to be anything but that. This is an ITN news flash from the Olympic Village in Munich, where early this morning, armed Palestinian guerrillas raided the sleeping quarters of the Israeli team. The voice of this broadcaster sent a shockwave through the Olympics. On September 5th, years of bloodshed in the Middle East came to a boiling point in the middle of the games. Members of the militant group Black September stunned the world. They took 11 hostages and demanded the release of 234 Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails and two others held in West Germany. The group said they did it in response to the Israeli Defense Forces expelling citizens from two Palestinian Christian villages. I want to stop and briefly acknowledge that this isn't a political show. And for that reason, we won't be delving more into the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But back then in Munich, a celebration of countries coming together was now turned on its head. For the men's basketball team, it was impossible to focus only on basketball. They brought German troops in and completely surrounded the village. No one was leaving, no one could get in. So there really wasn't anything that we could do except to watch uh, what was happening. Our barracks was about 40 yards away from that barracks, and uh, we could see throughout the day all the things that were happening. Occasionally, one of those terrorists would come to an open window, had his ski mask on so you couldn't recognize him. Uh, he thrust his automatic weapon out the window for all to see they certainly were still in control. He would occasionally take one of those Israeli athletes and grab him by the hair of the head, thrust it out the window, signifying to all that the hostages are still alive, but unless our demands are not met soon, that might not be the case much longer. So uh, that took place all day. The setting was surreal. The Olympic Village transformed into a military camp. The men's basketball team had an armed guard that stayed in the room. But even that kind of security didn't shield the players from the terror. Just past midnight on September 6th, ABC's Jim McKay covered the horrific events as they unfolded. We've just gotten the final word. You know, when I was a kid, my father used to say, our greatest hopes and our worst fears are seldom realized. Our worst fears have been realized tonight. They've now said that there were 11 hostages. Two were killed in their rooms this mo yesterday morning. Nine were killed at the airport tonight. They're all gone. Tom, Kenny, and their teammates were among the 80,000 people who filled Olympic Stadium for a memorial service. Dear friends in sorrow, today is a day of unspeakable sorrow for us. They broke into this beautiful, great festival of the peoples of this earth, a festival devoted to peace, and they committed murder. That was a translated clip from the address the president of the IOC gave at the memorial. He acknowledged the clash of the Terrorist Act with the spirit of the Olympic Games, which stand for peace and unity. And then the Games continued. In fact, that very night, on September 6th, the U.S. team took the court in the men's semifinal game against Italy. Team USA won 68-38. Now they were headed to the gold medal game against the Soviets. I talked to Tom about what it felt like to press forward. How did you kind of get back into the mode of, of training and playing basketball? 
we didn't have a lot of time to mm -hmm. uh, to ponder this. We we were in the midst of really heated competition, and so uh, which was starting to intensify because we had to go in the semis and play against the Italians, and then we had to go to Russians and play Saturday nights so the Soviets. So we just didn't have time to think about it too much. It was full speed ahead, so I don't think any of those coaches had a moment's thought about not going forward, and they sort of expected us to be of that mindset too. I, it's it's so unbelievable to sit here and to talk to you about it and to try to imagine what that was like. Right before the games, we had all gone to Dachau and seen the you know, the horrible concentration camps. And uh, we had visited that sort of before the whole Olympics began. And, and to sort of see this reminder in the in the village was so sobering. And again, surreal uh, to think that what Germany's worst nightmare was occurring here, you know, 30 some years after the, the war. A lot of exposure with the dark side of humanity. It really was, yes. There's no question about it. But, uh, you know, it, it's part of this whole 72 Olympics, which was that it was probably the most geopolitical of Olympics of all time. Uh, because not only did you have that horrific event, but you also had uh, our event, which was really a Cold War outcome. Mm-hmm. We were just a stage. We were we were kind of puppets on a stage, really. So the semifinal games took place after the terrorism. The U.S. and Soviets both won, no surprise, to uh, set up yet another uh, gold medal contest between the two superpowers. And I should point out, too, this is during the Cold War. You know, the Soviets and the U.S., although there were talks among, I think, Richard Nixon and maybe Brezhnev at that point. I mean, the, the two countries could not stand each other. They would do anything to beat each other on the athletic field, uh, no matter where it was or what the sport was. That's historian David Sweet, author of the book Three Seconds in Munich. He's talking about the relationship between U.S. President Nixon and Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev. In 1972, the U.S. and USSR were at the height of tensions. That summer, the two leaders held a summit and it felt like world peace was hanging in the balance. The political stakes added even more weight and interest to the gold medal game. It was being played close to midnight in Munich, West Germany, and that was because they wanted to get it on in prime time in the east coast of the United States. So these players on both teams had all day just to really almost do nothing and just think about, you know, the biggest game of their lives. Up to this point in Munich, the U.S. team had obliterated its competition, winning their eight games by an average of 25 points. But in the gold medal game against the Soviets, the U.S. was by no means the favorite. They had played, our understanding, probably 300 games together, and we'd played about 10 games together, so that made a big difference. You can uh, have athletes that aren't as skilled, but if you play together more often, you can end up with a better team than you can with all-stars. And I think that was maybe one of the reasons that, that the Russian team played us so well. Uh, they were good. They were extremely good. Once the game started, the U.S. team quickly found out just how good. Hank Iba's rigid horse-and-buggy offense played right into the hands of the Soviets. The slow pace favored the Soviet style. 
The Soviet Union led by five at halftime, and by as much as ten in the second half, with the U.S. trailing with less than five minutes left one of the U.S. players, a forward named Kevin Joyce, spoke up. And he wasn't, you know, their main player or anything, but he, he was just so frustrated. You know, and think about it, it's about 1 a.m. in the morning, too. They're all, all just like, you know, what's going on here? We're, you know, we've won 63 games in a row as the U.S., and we're about to lose this game. Uh, so, yeah, Kevin Joyce, unexpectedly, was the guy who just said, we're we're changing it, and, and the coaches did not disagree. So all of a sudden, the U.S. started playing the way it played best. The U.S. made a furious rally and with less than a minute left, cut the lead to one. We started the episode as Doug Collins sunk two free throws, which appeared to seal the win for the U.S. It's worth revisiting this extraordinary moment in the game. Here's the sequence that got Collins to the line in the first place. The Soviets had the ball with the lead and could have run the clock out. But when Sergei Belov attempted to pass the ball to a teammate, Collins intercepted it and went up for a layup. But on the way to the basket, Collins was tackled like a running back into the ground. His head, you know, banged on the floor and it went under the basketball stanchion. He was really dazed. It took him about 30 seconds even just to stand up. But he he took the free throws. He had two free throws. The U.S. was down by one point. There were three seconds left. And he had said he had heard Hank Iba, the coach, say, I'm Doug, I want Doug to take these free throws. I mean, he could have said he's too injured and brought in someone else. So Doug Collins, uh, you know, under the most pressure in his young life, sank two free throws with three seconds left and gave the U.S. their first lead of the game, 50 to 49. That's just an unbelievable moment. Right. When you watch him, he's just in a zone. It was the two clutchest free throws in U.S. basketball history and should have gone down as one of the most memorable moments in Olympic history. Two free throws to give Team USA the gold. But instead, the moment is largely forgotten because of what happens next. Three seconds. That's how much time is left on the clock after Collins' free throws. The U.S. leads 50-49. to 49. I'm going to break down what happened. Pay attention, because there were essentially three violations of rules over those final three seconds of the game. After Collins' free throws, the Soviets have the ball. They are forbidden by international rules to call a timeout after a free throw. But with their offense and chaos after they inbound the ball, the Soviet coach and the bench rush the court demanding that the clock be stopped. The referee stops the clock, claiming that there are fans on the court, even though it's clear that only the Soviet bench is on the court. The clock is stopped. This is the first violation. You can hear the frantic commotion. Now there is one second left on the clock. The players set up on the court. The refs blow the whistle. The Soviet passer throws a long pass, and it's deflected. That's when the buzzer sounds, and the Americans erupt. 50-49, the U.S. wins. But then a man from the stands walks onto the court. It's R. William Jones of Great Britain, the Secretary General of the International Amateur Basketball Federation. Jones has absolutely no authority during an Olympic game, but he walks onto the court, faces the officials, and lifts his arm with three fingers raised. He's overruling the officials, not only granting the Soviets possession, but also noting that there should be three seconds on the clock. 
the refs comply. This is the second egregious violation. Now, this person has the title of Secretary General of International Basketball, which means absolutely zero while the game is in progress. He has no power. He has no authority. However, he demanded and overruled all of those people, and he said that you will put three more seconds back on that clock. Well, what we should have done is gone straight to the dressing room and never come back out. But he also said at that particular time, if you do that, then I will forfeit you. So we had been together too long and worked too hard to allow that to happen. In other words, in the chaos, the U.S. has no choice but to keep playing. Now the Soviets line up to inbound the ball again for a third time. And a reminder, because I know it's hard to follow, there are three seconds back on the clock. A Soviet player lines up at the end of the court, ready to inbound the ball. Tom McMillan is the U.S. player on him, his arms raised. But the referee orders Tom to back off and give the opposing player more space and a clear look of the court. The ref has no authority to do this. Tom has every right to be defending the pass. The ref is enforcing a rule that doesn't exist. Instead, the Soviet player is given a huge edge in completing a successful pass down the court. This is the third egregious violation. Tom backs off, and here's what happens. Then the Russian player turned and shot the basketball. It went in, and then the horn sounded again. But this time, it was the Russian players who were jumping up and down and celebrating. Now, the Soviets are celebrating madly. The scoreboard reads 51-50, with zero seconds remaining. To sum it up, the officials at the game gave the Soviets three chances to win as time expired. On the third try, they finally succeeded. In sports, the playing field is supposed to be level. Rules are black and white. Sports are the ultimate meritocracy. That's the beauty of sports. And the Olympics are supposed to be sports at their very best. The highest ideals of fair play and honorable competition. When the 12 members of the men's basketball team arrived in Munich, they believed in all of that. The purity of sports. Those ideals were shattered during those three seconds. So when all of that took place, we went to the dressing room and extremely frustrated. And all of a sudden, I don't know who said it. And to this day, nobody realizes who said it. We said, I'm not going to take that silver medal. And all of a sudden, well, I'm not either. None of us decided to go out and accept that silver medal. It was simple, really. To accept the silver medal would be to agree that they had lost the game. Instead, the head of the U.S. Olympic Basketball Committee filed a detailed protest. A jury of five from the Federation of International Basketball considered the filing. They voted to dismiss by a 3-2 vote. It was later revealed that the three who voted to dismiss the case were from Soviet allied countries, fueling speculation that the result was based more upon Cold War politics than the rule book. And the closer people looked, the more conspiracy they saw in the result of the game. David's reporting for his book revealed that one of the referees, Ardenik Arabajian, was from Bulgaria and had made several questionable calls during the game. He was also the referee who told Tom to back off on the final pass. You have a, a referee from Bulgaria, which was basically a Soviet satellite at that point, who not only moved Tom McMillan off the ball, but in the book I show that 
he called a number of fouls in the last three minutes against the U.S. And looking at the videotape, at least two of them were questionable. I would also point out after the game, Jim Bain, who roomed with Artenic Arabaji, and Jim Bain was another referee, he said, you know, what what happened? I mean, that that was just crazy, you know, what was going on there. And he, he said to Jim Bain, uh, if the Soviets had lost that game, my family would have been in, in trouble. They would have been in danger. The man who impacted the game the most, however, was R. William Jones. You remember, the official who rushed the court to add three seconds to the clock? It turns out that it was also Jones who handpicked the committee that ruled on the protest. R. William Jones had run international basketball since 1932. He had run the Olympic tournament since 1936. But there had been complaints that he was in the Soviets' favor uh, as far back as 1952. I mean, I just cannot believe this is how it went down. I know. It, uh, that's why I call it uh, the most controversial finish in sports history. You have a, you're on the world stage. You, one one play is replayed. You know, it's it's played three times basically. The following day after the game and after the protest had been dismissed, the medal stand featured the Soviets in first and the Cubans in third. The second place stand was empty. The U.S. players had already flown home. If we'd have lost the game according to the rules, we would have proudly stood there and accepted that silver medal because losing gracefully, I believe, is much more important than winning gracefully. But to have gone out and played by the rules and won the gold and have a bunch of bureaucrats say to us, oh, we know that, we understand that because of our error and our mistake, we'd like you to take the silver. We just felt like that was something that we could not and we should not do. And uh, even to this day, uh, 49 years later, not one player on our team has ever accepted that silver medal. It would be a strange homecoming. It was a, it was a tough, tough experience. Plus, you had to come back to the United States and explain it, you know. And it was a worldwide television audience. That's Tom again. Uh, what was the reception you received when you got back to these States? Well, we came really back to go to college, you know. I was mm-hmm. back in Maryland. And I ended up doing, you know, a lot of people asked me to go out and speak about this. And, you know, I, 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 t- I talked about... Uh, the experience of being an Olympic athlete and the fact that you go there so idealistic and so thinking this is the most noble venture on the planet, and then you come back and you're very sobered and realize that this was a a very human invention with all the human weaknesses and frailties because not only did we have murder and chicanery and all that, refereeing disputes and all kinds of things. You just never would have thought that, that that your remembrance of the Olympics was marred by human weaknesses. And that's kind of remember, that's what you remember. You grow up real quick, it sounds like. Yeah, that's that's the truth of it. So you, you end up having a perspective of the Olympics that just like every other human in, invention that, uh, but... You know, the, the point of bringing athletes together on a world stage is, is very, uh, it, it is noble. But it's hard to keep the politics and the human frailties out of it. The players returned to the U.S. changed. Doug Collins, who should have been hailed a hero after sinking the critical free throws, would recall the Sports Illustrated. I didn't know what I was made of till then. The world wasn't a fairy tale after all. 
You know what it did? It prepared me for the NBA, where your heart gets broken every other day. It prepared me for life. Winning the gold or fraudulently winning the gold, however you want to say it, for this Russian team changed their lives. It meant a lot more to them than it would have to us. I mean, for the U.S., it would have been another in a string of gold medals. Uh, but for them, it helped them live better lives in a country that was, you know, not in great shape. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there's that aspect uh, of it as well. Those last words you hear are of a basketball ref yelling three seconds in Russian. It's from a trailer of the movie Going Vertical, or as it's known in Russia, Three Seconds. It's a Russian film, and as you could probably guess from the title, it's focused on the 72 Olympic gold medal game, from the Soviet perspective. It was released in 2017, and it was the highest-grossing Russian movie of all time. The movie never found a U.S. distributor. Needless to say, there isn't a feel-good Hollywood version of this story. But despite their anger and bitterness, Kenny, Tom, and their teammates acknowledge that the game did have a significant impact on growing basketball globally, that the U.S.'s complete dominance at the time wasn't necessarily great for international basketball. Many had speculated that R. William Jones's motivation for pushing for a Soviet win in Munich was that a U.S. loss would only help spread the appeal of basketball around the world. More teams would be invested in international basketball if they thought they actually had a chance to win. Ironically, they were probably right. I mean, the fact of the matter is, it's been good for the world that basketball has grown up uh, around the world as such. The NBA got the biggest beneficiary of the United States probably losing the 72 game, uh, ostensibly, because that gave hope for all these countries around the world, Brazil, Italy, it supercharged their basketball programs. And from that, all these great athletes came into the NBA. The U.S. men's team would win gold in 76 and again in 84. But after settling for bronze and seeing the USSR atop the podium in 88, U.S. basketball pushed for the inclusion of NBA players in the Olympics. A congressman from Maryland circulated a resolution signed by members that argued that it was time for the International Olympic Committee to allow the best players in the U.S. to compete. That congressman was Tom McMillan. After Munich, the 12 players went their separate ways. Every few years, a letter would arrive at their homes from USA Basketball, asking if they are ready to accept their medals, if they are ready to let go of their principles. Around the 10th anniversary of the game, in 1982, the executive director of USA Basketball said, I wish they would accept it and put it behind us. But here's the catch. For any of them to get their medal, USA Basketball informed them that they all must agree. And over all these years, only Tom has hinted that he's open to accepting silver. Really, it's just Tom looking for a way for some good to come out of such a horrible loss. He suggested that the team ask for a set of duplicate gold medals and that those gold medals then be sold to give money to Russian orphanages. Tom's teammates rejected his idea. Life did go on for all of them after Munich. They went on to long careers in basketball and in professions that had nothing to do with basketball. Their lives have not been consumed by what happened to them in Munich. But now and then, 
that night comes back, and with it, a rush of unexpected, complicated emotions. It hurt for a while, but every time that I think about what happened to us, I think about those Israeli kids. We all came home. We had good careers. Everybody had a good life. Things went well for us. But those kids were our age, and we ate in the same cafeteria, uh, walked in the same village, did the same things they did. We came home, and they did not. So uh, what happened to us was uh, unfortunate. What happened to them was uh, an injustice. The one part of the story that remains unresolved today is the fate of those pieces of silver in the bank vault. Kenny, however, made a decision a few years back that may settle the issue. He made a note of his medal in his will. My wife and I had been married probably 20 years and had accumulated a few possessions, and we were advised that we needed to put a will together. We just asked the attorney, is it possible if I could put that in there to not uh, have uh, my descendants ever take that silver medal. I have two wonderful children, and I don't think either one of them would want the medal anyway, knowing my position and my feelings on it. So uh, they have supported it all these years, and uh, I think they're tickled to death that I did that. September 2022 will mark 50 years since the game, and Tom wonders if any perspectives on the matter will have changed. If, with the passage of time, any of them will see those 12 medals as a symbol not of injustice, but of the inevitable imperfections in sports. I think the fact that it's the 50th anniversary will give a interesting time for uh, introspection. You know, it's one of those times where you have to start thinking about sports and thinking about the legacy here. And it's one of those, it's one of those issues that here we are 50 years later and the same things are happening. The same as you saw, the same cheating, the same scandals, the same doping, the same all that. And it's just another part of the of the saga. But he also knows his teammates, many of whom became like brothers to him. And Kenny, of course, was he's always been so firm on this. And, you know, he <laughs> has in his will that, you know, he'll never take the medal. Having medals sit there for 200 years is might keep this story alive, but it's not doing anything in terms of a legacy. Deep down, Tom has accepted that his teammates won't abandon their principles for a few pieces of metal. After all, according to Kenny, that's all it really is. You know, sometimes we confuse the symbol that they give you for the achievement with the actual achievement itself. Our understanding is that Germany monetarily paid only $12 for that silver medal. They only paid $16 for the gold medal. So it's just a symbol. And if we never, ever get that symbol, that'll be okay. Because knowing that we won that game is enough satisfaction to do us for the rest of our lives. Torched is a production of Film Nation Entertainment in association with Gilded Audio. It's executive produced by me, Molly Bloom, Alyssa Martino, Milan Papelka, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. This episode was produced by Jenner Pasqua and Marcy Thompson. It was written by Albert Chen. Technical direction and engineering by Nick Dooley. Original music by James Lavino. Special thanks to Allison Cohen, Sarah Vacchiano, Matt Eisenstadt, and Omar Tarbush. 
For more about the 72 Munich basketball game in this episode, check out David Sweet's book, Three Seconds in Munich. Next time on Torched, we head to the 1998 Winter Olympics when snowboarder Ross Rebliotti met scandal at the finish line and ignited a debate about marijuana use that continues to this day. That's next time on Torched. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and review on whatever app you like to listen on. It helps the show and it helps new listeners find us. This is Torched. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. 